So I'm here with um, Dr. Cormac Rafferty from the Watford Institute of Technology in, in Dublin. And you recently stumbled across quite a surprising find in the Einstein archive. That's right, Rachel. Um, I, I keep forgetting we're the ones who found it because the find itself is... Uh, I think the word I would use is interesting, you're absolutely right. It's not fun of fundamental importance, but it's a manuscript Einstein wrote and was about to publish and then decided not to publish. And we can see why it doesn't, what he's trying to do doesn't work. But at the same time, what he is trying to do is extremely interesting. So what was, what was he trying to do yeah, in the paper? Well, the thing is, the first thing we noticed was it seems to have been written at an extremely interesting moment in cosmology when the first evidence for an expansion has emerged. So Hubble's law has just emerged and they're beginning to consider, or at least the relativists are beginning to think, maybe the universe is expanding on a very large scale. And so... Originally, when Einstein first tackled uh, models of the evolution of the universe, he believed in a static universe that wasn't expanding. That's a very good point, yeah. I should have said around this time, the story really starts in 1917, where Einstein put together his famous static model. There was no evidence for an expanding universe, and I think even the idea was pretty, would have seemed pretty wacky. <laughs> so everyone assumed the universe was static, including Einstein. Then around about 1927, 1929, although some theoreticians had talked about expanding universe, there's nobody paid any attention, least of all Einstein, but in 1927 and 29, first the evidence began to emerge, but also theoreticians realized that actually Einstein's universe wasn't really self-consistent. And that's when you have this really interesting moment when suddenly the, the sort of theoreticians begin to realize that number one, relativity predicts a dynamic either expanding or contracting universe and number two experiment was beginning to show exactly that and so what he was proposing is that the universe what it seems like he was toying with was that the universe could expand but the nature of the universe would stay the same the density of matter would stay the same that that, that's exactly right and what I like about that is that it fits very much with what we know about Einstein mm. because actually he was extremely hostile <laughs> to the idea of a dynamic universe. Friedman and Lemaitre and people like that did suggest during the 1920s that maybe you could have an expansion of a changing universe. You might say an evolving universe. And Einstein didn't like this idea at all. So it, it fits very neatly, I think, that we now know, according to the manuscript, that actually, on learning of an expansion, Einstein's first instinct is to say, well, maybe the universe is changing, or sorry, dynamic in the sense that it's not static, but maybe it's not changing. So he clearly preferred mm. that sort of universe. And in fact, it, it, it sort of fits very nicely with a question I've always had in my mind. Um, many, many years later, a Cambridge physicist called Fred Hoyle came up with basically the same idea, and it became a very controversial theory. But I, I, had, I teach this to my students every year, and I always find myself wondering internally, why did it take almost 20 years for someone to mm. think of that idea? And so it's really nice that Einstein did think about it. What did they think, what, what were the rest of the theoreticians thinking about at that time? That's a very good question. There were all sorts of models, that's mm. true. Uh, Tolman has this amazing model where he feels that matter is actually being annihilated, a bit like a star burning out, converting to radiation. And he thinks that could, be, in fact, be causing an, ex an, ex an expansion. And there's a big argument between him and Eddington, and Eddington says, no, that can't be right. And we, we actually suspect that may be what gave Einstein the idea. But there are all sorts of models at this time, yeah. So 20 years after Einstein's um, attempt to write 
an expanding but unchanging model of the universe. Fred Hoyle came up with the steady state theory. Um, why was that controversial at the time Hoyle came up with it? Yeah, I, I should say first, by the way, I gave a talk in Dublin where a mathematics professor asked me, are we saying that Einstein's thing casts Hoyle's model in a bad light? Um, it doesn't, I should say. Hoyle's model was perfectly consistent. It was a perfectly viable model of the universe. But it turns out it's that's not the way the universe is. The, yeah. the reason it became controversial is... Um, as the evidence mounted more and more in favour of a universe that is evolving, meaning that as it expands, the amount of stuff stays the same, but that means the density goes down, and so galaxies today are very, very different to, say, the distribution of galaxies many years ago. Um, the controversy arose because the stronger that evidence became, the more Hoyle fought it, <laughs> and Hoyle and his collaborators didn't really seem to want to give way on that. And Usually theoreticians like to explore different models of the world, they're not supposed to fall in love with a particular model and stick through it too thick and thin, but Hoyle was, was not for turning, that's for sure. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if Hoyle had found this manuscript. I think he would, he would have let the world know that Einstein once considered this too, but he clearly didn't. So what, what, Einstein never published this paper. What was his public view on, on this, the... Yeah, it's a good question. I should say first, by the way, the difference between the two is we think what happens, looking carefully at the manuscript, Einstein realises that the version he has doesn't work. To make it work, he would have to change something in the field equations of relativity. He would have to put in a new term, and he clearly decides against doing that. That's exactly what Hoyle does, or 20 years later, he puts in the new term. So instead, within three months, Einstein has published a different model. It's now known as the Friedman-Einstein model, where it's an expanding, evolving universe. And actually, that's how we found the manuscript. We were looking at that particular model, and we were writing a paper on it. And nowadays, when you're doing that sort of historical research, it's good to look at any draft manuscripts. And in particular, we found a, a very obvious mistake in it. And I had wondered, was the mistake made on the part of the journal rather than Einstein? and that's why I was checking through drafts and I slowly realised that what I was looking at had the same title and the same opening paragraph but went off in a completely different direction so it was like finding a play by Beckett with featuring uh, Godot except Godot turns up in the first <laughs> act that's what it was like yeah. and so I mean is it does it give you insight then into the evolution of his own understanding of, of of the universe. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it, 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 it sort of confirms the idea that all of the great masters there were really in the business of exploring different models. You know, like a good detective who says, it may have happened this way, or on the other hand, it may have happened that way, or possibly even this way. They're open to every line of inquiry. And I, as it, it had puzzled me until now that nobody in the 1930s had come up with the idea of continuous creation of matter in an expanding universe. Because the idea of matter being created out of nothing had happened before. People like Arrhenius and Macmillan and even Paul Dirac had suggested this. So it comes really to me as no surprise at all that mm. Einstein did in fact consider this and it shows you the sort of simple logical development of, of the great minds I think as the sort of empirical cosmology unfolded over the 20th century. And Cormac, what are you doing here in Cambridge this week? Well, actually, I'm here attending a, a, a meeting known as the Cosmology and the Constants of Nature, and it's one of a series of meetings. Uh, it's an initiative launched by Cambridge and Oxford a few years ago, which looks at the philosophy of cosmology. So it's, it was extreme interest to me. I mean, yesterday we had John Barrow, for example, give a fantastic overview of current problems in modern cosmology. So, you know, you know it's not really 
my area, I'm more interested in the history of cosmology, but it's of great interest and I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, it was the last two years of these sort of meetings that really helped me that when we saw this manuscript, I was able to take the time to think about the philosophical implications. It's not so much that, you know, it's true that Einstein doesn't succeed in doing what he's trying to do, but what he's trying to do is of great interest. It's, it's like the history of ideas. And I think this, this sort of conference is wonderful for sort of, it's a meeting of minds of different sorts of people in the audience, of physicists and mathematicians and philosophers looking at modern problems in cosmology from a slightly different perspective. So it's really fantastic to be here. And what have you, has there, apart from John's talk, has there been any other ideas that have come out in the conference that have been particularly surprising? Yeah, well we had a fantastic overview of current problems in uh, particle physics as well from John Ellis of, of CERN fame, he's an outstanding theoretician at CERN and um, again when you hear John sort of give a simple straightforward list of where he thinks particle physics theory will be going in the next 10 years and you compare that to current events in cosmology, it's astonishing how the same philosophical problems arise in both the, the world of the extremely large and the world of the extremely small. So I think a time has come when many physicists at the very cutting edge of physics realise that you know, the language of philosophy and the way in which philosophers put their questions and articulate their questions can really be of help to physicists as well. So you discovered this in the Einstein of Ar uh, Einstein's archive, um, which is held in uh, which it the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. No, yeah, I should say we're extremely grateful to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem because they started a project a number of years ago where they've started putting all of Einstein's manuscripts and um, uh, writings, personal writings as well, online, and that allows scholars like me all around the world in the most minor institutions anywhere <laughs> to, fool, to, to look carefully online at this and study them at our leisure. So it, it really is all really thanks to what we call the Einstein Papers Project. It's thanks to that project that work like this can be done. So do you think there's any other secrets hiding in the archive? I, I, I don't want to give away too many secrets, but we've already found another manuscript which casts quite a lot of light on a different Einstein model, and I think uh, a lot of scholars around there, around the world, are beginning to realise that there, there's a treasure trove of information here. The only snag is, of course, one has to have a very good knowledge of German, <laughs> a knowledge of mathematics, and a knowledge of physics, so <laughs> recruiting postgrads for our group is becoming very difficult recently. Well, we look forward to hearing about the next discovery from the archive. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Rachel. Thank you.